Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Conversations you'll want to tune in for today. Well, they include... We're talking about the Department of Justice and one of the largest ever investigations into human trafficking, according to them. Farm workers smuggled into the U.S. and forced into hard labor for little pay on farms across South Georgia. Now, we'll hear from an attorney representing farm workers about the investigation. And the city of Atlanta wants your input about, quote, creative bike parking. Find out what that's all about. All that's coming up. But first this. When Chris, with Christmas a week or so away, the head of Atlanta's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is calling on all of us to take steps, proven steps, they call it, to slow the spread of COVID-19. Dr. Rochelle Walensky spoke during a White House pandemic briefing today. Use the next week to make sure you're practicing those safe prevention mitigation strategies so that when you come together for the holidays, that people have been not exposed to the virus because, in fact, they've been vaccinated, boosted, and masked. And for that extra reassurance, as we have more disease in this country right now, do a test and make sure that you're negative before you mix and gather in different households. Got it. Walensky says the highly transmissible Omicron variant of the coronavirus has been detected in some 39 states and will become the dominant strain in the U.S. in the coming weeks. Federal health officials say it's still unclear if the variant causes more severe disease. And a programming note, make sure you join us Monday for a one-on-one interview with Dr. Walensky. Speaking of the CDC, the agency also says people looking to get vaccinated against COVID-19 should first turn to drug makers Pfizer and Moderna instead of the one on the one shot from Johnson and Johnson. Now, Thursday's decision came after government advisors reviewed new safety data about rare but potentially life-threatening blood clots linked to the J&J shot. Still, the agency says any shot is better than none, and people who are unwilling or unable to get the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine will still have access to the J&J shot. In other news... The Fulton County Elections Board has voted to extend outgoing elections director Richard Barron's contract for another three months. That's according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. But what's not clear is if Barron will agree to stay on. Barron announced he was stepping down from the post at the end of this year. And there's still buzz about electric automaker Rivian announcing yesterday it has plans to build a $5 billion plant east of Atlanta along with Morgan County along the Morgan County, Watson County line. Now, politics reporter Raul Bally says, look, this political implications of that major announcement, take a listen. Governor Brian Kemp is making the state's economy one of the key parts of his re-election bid. Right after Thursday's announcement, the governor was asked by a reporter about criticism by Republican opponent David Perdue, who says economic development in Georgia has, quote, 
lost its luster recently. Hey, I'll just let my record speak for itself. I mean, we've announced the largest economic development project in the state's history today. But before we did that, we announced the lowest ever unemployment rate in the state of Georgia. Plus, we have the most Georgians ever working in our state. Expect the Rivian announcement to appear in ads for Kemp and maybe even debated by other candidates. In a pair of tweets, Democratic candidate for Governor Stacey Abrams sought to give credit to U.S. Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, along with a local union representing electrical workers. Raul Bally, WABE News. A shortage of bus operators means MARTA will cut back service beginning tomorrow, Saturday. The transit agency has indicated 96 of its 113 bus routes will start running on Saturday schedules, even during weekdays. That could mean longer waits at bus stops. Marta says the COVID-19 pandemic has left it short-staffed. Some employees are not complying with its vaccination policies and others are just not showing up for work. And finally, there is a championship game this weekend in Atlanta. The Celebration Bowl is a national championship game to crown the best football team from historically black colleges and universities. This year's matchup, well, takes place tomorrow at Mercedes-Benz Stadium at noon. The Jackson State Tigers versus the South Carolina State Bulldogs. Now, I got to go with former Atlanta Falcons and Braves star Dion Primetime Sanders. He's the head coach at Jackson State and his team. I think they're going to win. My prediction, final score, Jackson State 38, South Carolina State 21. Apologies to the South Carolina State fans. Plus, I'm going to get emails for this, Daniel and Kevin and Sam and LaShawn. Jackson State has the better marching band. Yes, I said it. The sonic boom. Let's take a listen. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR and Amplifying Voices. I'm Rose Scott. Late last month, federal prosecutors announced indictments of two dozen folks involved in a human and labor trafficking ring. Now, prosecutors allege Mexican and Central American workers were forced into brutal conditions on South Georgia farms. The accused allegedly used the H-2A work program to smuggle folks into the U.S., forced them into hard labor for for little or no pay. 
and also threatened them with deportation and violence. The criminal enterprise was uncovered through an effort involving the U.S. Department of Justice and other federal agencies called Operation Blooming Onion. The Georgia Legal Services Program, which provides nonprofit legal help to low-income Georgians, especially those in rural areas, has represented many clients who are stuck in these situations for years, and they recently started working with the federal agencies that conducted the investigation. Soli Mercado Spencer is a senior attorney with GLSP, and much of her work has been dedicated to helping farm workers who face labor exploitation. Soli joins me now. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Hyros. Let's begin here, because I think for our listeners who may not be familiar with your organization's work, um, let's start there and tell them about who are your clients and how you all come to, to to be able to help these folks? How does this happen? Uh, well, Georgia Legal Services Program, we provide different types of free legal services for um, the poor community in Georgia, including family law, housing, access to public benefits, eviction prevention, access to education. But we also have our Farm Worker Rights Division, which focuses on the rights of farm workers in over all the state of Georgia. And that would include um, issues regarding their pay, their housing conditions that are related to the employment, um, uh, whether their immigration status, if they have questions about their immigration status. Mm -hmm. And in this particular case, we're also advising clients that are uh, witnesses or victims in a criminal case. Can you, for our listeners, take us through a typical scenario of how folks who are illegally brought to these states or how do they get sort of lured into these type of situations? Right. So the, the common scenario here, and this is a legal visa program. So mm-hmm. these workers uh, technically are coming in with legal visas. They're mm-hmm. legal workers. Okay. Um, they are recruited um, in their very poor communities in Mexico and um, Guatemala and other countries in Central America with this offer of uh, really a premium job. H-2A jobs are supposed to pay a higher wage than even the minimum wage in the U.S., provide free housing, free transportation. Um, So for a poor worker uh, who has very limited um, uh, employment opportunities in their home country, this is a golden ticket. Mm -hmm. Uh, Legal work in the United States making premium wages. Uh, But there's a catch to get on the list for this um, employment, they are charged illegal recruitment fees. Mm. And this could be in the thousands, which for poor workers, this is a, a fortune that they cannot afford. So they, that they are induced to come into um, to borrow money from their family members, neighbors, anybody they can find that can lend them money to pay this recruitment fee because they think that once they get the job, their, their investment will be worth it because they'll be making a small fortune that would allow them to pay off their, their fee their fees and make money for the families. So Lee, let's back up a little bit for our listeners so we have a clear understanding of the H-2A program and how it works. How is it supposed to work? So it is a seasonal um, visa program for employers that can demonstrate that they cannot find local workers to do those jobs. Um, so once an employer demonstrates that they can find local workers to work in their fields, they make an application 
to the U.S. Department of Labor um, re requesting certain amount of workers for a certain period of time, which is up to 10 months a year. So these are temporary jobs. Mm -hmm. And so then the U.S. Department of Labor would approve those petitions if they're processed properly. And then the, the employers will use recruiters or contractors to recruit workers in those communities to be, bring them with those visas. And these recruiters, and this is where we get into the, the core of this, these recruiters, are they regulated? Apparently not. Is there any type of, of assessment that's used to determine who these folks are, who the recruiters are, and then the folks that own the farms, these, the operators of the farms, what, what checks and balances are they going through, if any, apparently not, with these recruiters to make sure that they are, that they are credible? There's no regulation and no oversight of whatever happens um, south of the border. And so the employers are making an assurance to the U.S. Department of Labor that nobody is charging these fees to the workers. So in paper, the employer is saying nobody has charged the workers to come here. Um, and, you know, they, they swear under penalty of perjury that sure. they haven't charged the fees. But whatever happens out of the border, it's unregulated. And, and it, it's very common, even though it's illegal. Uh, we see it all the time that workers are paying these illegal recruitment fees to come under the H-2A program. Hmm. I want to play a clip here because last year NBC News told the story of one of your clients, Alberto, who was working on a farm in South Georgia. We're about to hear a clip from Alberto in his own words, and then afterwards you will translate for us. No tenía calefacción y la temperatura bajó hasta 6 grados. A nosotros, a mí, a otros cuatro compañeros nos tocó dormir afuera. Sentíamos que podía pasarnos a tal vez a estar, estar al borde de la muerte. What do we hear, Sully? So here he's saying, um, he's talking about the housing that was provided. They had no heating. And this was, I believe it was late February or early March. So temperatures dropped to around like the low 30s. Um, and some of the workers, including the one that was interviewed, he had to sleep outside. So the workers were feeling like they were at the, he says, al borde de la muerte, in the border, the brink of death. That's how they were feeling. And this was in, so uh, this was in South Georgia? This was in Blackshear, Georgia. So only the workers, are they, they're not staying on the, the actual, where the farms where they're working there, are they off-site somewhere at some type of other camp or facility? That's what it sounds like. That's how it typically happens? Yeah, yes. So there, there are plays in migrant camps, and these migrant camps can look like a bunch of trailers in the middle of nowhere or sometimes an, an abandoned motel or a rundown motel. Or sometimes they have barracks um, that, so uh, some of the housing is nice. So if employers have invested the money to, to build nice barracks, so you can find all the way from nice barracks with all the amenities to really run down trailers, uh, run down hotels or old houses that look like they're abandoned. As described in the indictment, inve investigators talked about how you're talking about forced labor trafficking, money laundering, among other crimes. Uh, you mentioned fraudulently using the H-2A work visa program. Um, how did you all come to, 
are you all, let me back up, are you all also been involved in this investigation? So Georgia Legal Services has not been involved in the investigation. That that would be um, the the law enforcement agents who are investigating. Uh, but um, yes, yes. So that's not us. The oh, indictment was not drafted by us. Right, but it, were, were you all? But you all are representing workers who were part of this this operation, Blooming Onion, though, who were caught up in that. Correct. Yes. I read where the workers were required to dig onions with their bare hands, pay 20 cents for each bucket harvested, and threaten with guns and violence to keep them in line. How common yes. is that? Uh, that, that? That sort of situation is common, and it's not only common to onions. I, I think they're using the most dramatic uh, pieces of their investigation to put in the indictment, uh, but workers are doing blueberries or packing pine straw or doing all kinds of non-agricultural jobs um, that were not um, um, authorized under their visa, under very difficult conditions without breaks, without access to drinking water sometimes, sometimes no access to bathrooms, so they have to uh, relieve themselves in the fields. Um, and the indictment also mentions one worker who died of sunstroke, hmm. and that that is not the, the only time that has happened in Georgia. And these are healthy young males that are, you know, put through, through such difficult situations that some of them are actually dying. I imagine someone listening says, well, what, through your lens, I'm going to ask this, then do you think that these, the the farmers, the operators of these farms, what role could they have played in preventing and making sure that these workers aren't being, aren't being forced on that end? I mean, you want to say they're responsible for it, but through your lens, do you think there is some level of accountability here for those who own the farms or the operators of the farms? I think what's happening is that the agricultural industry is shifting a lot of the responsibility of an employer to these farm labor contractors who themselves are, um, they're undercapitalized, they're, they don't have a lot of education themselves, they don't have a lot to lose, so they use this little power that they got, that they have to exploit the system and to make a profit. But em employers are looking the other way. So they're allowing this to happen um, because they don't want to be held liable. Um, so I, I think it's shift they're shifting the blame by giving this role of employer, instead of uh, taking the role of employer and being responsible for that, they're trying to shift that responsibility to these other middlemen who are really not adequate to have this role of employer. So there is no credible agency, even in, in Mexico or Honduras, that works with the United States that could ensure this process, a better process, obviously, and one that doesn't exploit people or cause people to lose their lives. It seems, maybe someone listening says, it seems like this would be an easy fix if they just work together and have a credible agency that works to get workers to these farms in South Georgia where they claim they can't find anybody? 
Um, yes, uh, that, that's, that, that is correct. It is difficult because um, there's a lot of uh, financial benefit at stake. So a lot of people are making a lot of money, including the agricultural industry in Georgia and other states who are benefiting from basically looking the other way on these issues. Well, let me ask you this. Are they paying? So they're paying the recruiters and not the individual workers. Is that how this is working? There are different scenarios. So you can see anywhere from the, the big corporation cutting out the checks to the workers to the corporation cutting the checks to the FLC to the farm labor contractor, and then the farm labor contractor paying the workers. So there is no one way that this is happening. There's different um, types of scenarios. Well, let me ask you this then, Soli. What would be the best way then to prevent this, if possible, through your lens? Um, I think if um, for growers to be held accountable would prevent a lot of these issues. So if, if it was the grower who was applying for the H-2A visa, and be responsible for for um, abiding by the H2A regulations and be held accountable if something goes wrong. I'm sure we'll see we would see a lot less of these situations um, because growers have a lot to lose. They have they have assets and they have money uh, that they want to protect, so they don't they don't want to get in trouble. We all understand the role of agriculture here in Georgia. Uh, it's one of the top producing sectors, obviously, for this state. Have you all, will you all take what's come out of this and go to state legislators, to lawmakers, and say, look, what can you all do? Is there something you all believe that they can do from a policy standpoint? Uh, well, that's not our role as legal services. Legal services, um, our role is to provide services for the victims and make sure their rights are protected. When it comes to uh, advancing legislation, we have to delegate that to other organizations such as Farmworker Justice, who is an um, organization in Washington, D.C., who does the policy piece. But we're that's not our role. Well, have you talked to them? I imagine y'all have talked. Y'all are in conversations yeah, with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're part of a network of farmworker advocates around the nation. Uh, so they are very aware of what's happening in Georgia. How optimistic are you then that at least something will be done based on this. This has made international news here. Um, to be honest, I'm not very optimistic. This situation has, situations like this are happening since the beginning of the H2A program. And before then, um, the Bracero program, which was an earlier version of a guest worker program. Um, so we have, it's the exploitation of a minority of people who are generally seeing in this country as second-class citizens, uh, and they are not a priority. Their priority is a good economy, like Georgia has a great economy, um, and um, it, it, the, the priority is not protecting these workers. I don't know if that's going to shift just because of Blooming Onion, the Operation Blooming Onion. If you look at the news now, uh, we're talking about it, but it's not centerpiece. Um, people forget when things happen. So I'm, I'm hoping that this operation is a model for more operations going forward um, and that just this big show of force mm -hmm. that our federal law enforcement and U.S. Attorney's Office has shown in Georgia will deter some of this from happening. Uh, but I am not optimistic that 
things are going to shift and, and change just because of this operation blooming on him. So we'll just this criminal enterprise, these practices will just continue and folks will be exploited. Folks have lost their lives already. It's been happening for years. And it's part of our country's history. Soli Mercado Spencer is a senior attorney with the Georgia Legal Services Program. Much of her work is dedicated to helping farm workers who face labor exploitation. I want you to be able to tell our listeners if they know of someone or if someone needs help in a situation like this, they should contact you all or who can folks contact? Yes. Um, if someone you know or someone um, you or someone you know is going through a situation similar to this or something um, concerning human trafficking, you can call always you can call 911 if it's an emergency or you can also call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. That number is 1-888-373-7888. And then for legal services and advice related to farm worker rights, including labor trafficking, you can call our office, the Farm Worker Rights Division of Georgia Legal Services. That number is 1-800-537-7496. And we have a website, that's www.tlsp.org. I encourage everyone to visit our website and follow us on Facebook to learn more about all the great work that our organization is doing in Georgia. And we'll have this information on our website as well. Soli, again, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you all are trying to do to help so many people. Thank you for having me. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Atlanta's Department of City Planning wants to hear from you, Atlanta. You you right there. You over there. You over there getting those fries. You over there. Why? Well, the Love Our Places bike parking program will provide an opportunity for what they say high impact areas to have, quote, creative bike parking throughout Atlanta. And they're taking applications for those creative ideas on bike parking. Joining me now with more is Commissioner of City Planning, Port Atlanta, Tim Keene. Welcome. My only complaint, Rose, is that you don't have me on here more often. <laughs> Man, come on. I mean, we got that. why is this not planning every day? I mean, doesn't everyone care about these issues? Isn't this what your what your audience wants to hear about, Rose? Let me tell you something. You you really want to go there with me right is now? Is it me or is it the topic? Did you you want to go with me about city planning? <laughs> Where you want to start? Affordable housing, a yeah, skate park for there. my for my little folks over on the west side. Oh, I got, I got a lot of city planning we could talk about. See, you need me more often. Man, come on now. Than even you think. <laughs> Y'all just full of initiatives over there in the city planning department, huh? We got a lot of planning emergency. Before we get to the creative bike parking, I want to talk about something because, mm-hmm. listen, you got a new mayor coming in. Uh, Andre Dickens will be sworn in next month. Uh, have you had a chance to speak with him? 
I have not. I have not. Don't you think you should course, be speaking I, with him? I, of course, I know the mayor like quite well, and uh, and have he came to council in 2013. I came to the city in 2015. We've worked together on many things. I think it's great for Atlanta. There's a lot of optimism in the city right now. We have not spoken, however. Are you? Do you have any? Before and we'll get to the bike parking because I know. I, folks love that that type of stuff. I'm here for the bike park. Well, but I don't care. You ask to answer some other questions too. I mean, but there are some other initiatives that you still would hope that this new mayor will 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 take up. And well, let's begin here. You want to remain as city planning commissioner, correct? <laughs> what are you laughing? It's a it's a question. <laughs> yes, I'd like to remain as planning commissioner for the city of Atlanta. We we have such amazing things happening in the city. This is such a uh, city that's in such a period right now that's unique among American cities. Um, and and the work that we're doing is at the forefront of that. I would certainly- Like what? Hope to continue. Like what? Well, everything that we're doing on housing affordability, on, on uh, uh, mobility related things, the hardest things we have to deal with is the city, uh, mm-hmm. housing, Affordability and affordability in general, uh, mm-hmm. mobility, the sustainability of the city, those kinds of things. So we're about to talk about one topic that might seem like a small one, but it's right, very much related mm-hmm. to mobility. And so, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and the mayor-elect obviously cares so deeply about these very issues. You know, I mean, uh, Andre Dickens talks every time you hear from him, mm-hmm. he talks about housing affordability and how that's essential to the future of the city and, and mobility. So, um, well, commissioner Keen, let me ask you this. Do you think people have a basic understanding of what you all are tasked with in your department? Well, you know, uh, some people know better than others, you know, um, <clears throat> we have a significant amount of the citizenry in Atlanta that participates in, development processes, so they know better, but there's plenty of people that don't. Um, the reality is the planning department is is the department in the city that pretty much touches every aspect of what's happening in the land. True. I mean, we, and and we, we have to think about, we uniquely have to think about the city five, 10, 20 years from now. So we do that, but we also have to help people today because there's so many things that we do on a daily basis mm-hmm. that, I mean, you could argue this is a department that has a closer relationship with Atlantans than any because of the variety of things we do. And and we are, though, Rose, I mean, it, it, this thing of thinking about the city 5, 10, 20 years from now mm-hmm. is, is essential because we, we, we are committed to this city getting better and better. And you have to have a longer view when it comes to any individual project, you know, it's got to be leading to something that's more than just the the project. What highlights can you give me through your lens, Commissioner Keene, under Mayor Bottoms' administration that you felt came through, that you are proud of, and then also some areas that, you know, you hope will improve? Don't act like you don't get these questions before. (laughs) The, uh, um, well, I think everything that we're working on, uh, we have more work to do on. I mean, the, the thing about our work, Rose, is that when you're dealing with uh, the matter of affordability in a city, that work 
is a list of a hundred things long and it's getting longer every day. Sure. So, and, and look, so I'm proud of what, what we've done. The well, housing affordability, look, Commissioner, housing affordability, we know that is not something that any administration has figured out. I'm talking about some other maybe smaller initiative or project or, or something. Well, uh, all the you just said about- y'all touch every aspect of a citizen's life here in, in Atlanta. So there's got to be something, right? Well, here's a couple things I'll mention. One is that we've been able to uh, help people uh, renovate their homes, uh, bring in small businesses, create small businesses, uh, create very large businesses over the busiest period in the city's history. We, we, have, we have helped people permit and inspect buildings such that this city could grow like it never has over the past four years. And that, that is, when you talk about the economic prosperity of the city, we have a daily responsibility that relates to that. And I'm, I'm very proud of that over the past four years, no question about it. The other thing is the topic that we're gonna get into right now. I think we've, we have had success affecting the conversation around transportation in Atlanta mobility and what it means as, as it relates to the streets in the city. Sure. This is, a, this is a city with a bigger challenge, one could argue, related to mobility than any city in America. And I think we've, we've, we've had success in that arena over the next four years. And it includes the Love Our Places program that we're gonna talk about, which isn't just the bike parking. Sure. But it also includes the work we're doing on Peachtree Street and, and other neighborhoods throughout the city. So I'm very proud of that over the past four years as well. Will you continue your crusade for one-way streets in downtown Atlanta? You mean two-way? Or two-way streets. Converting the the one-way. Absolutely. I think the downtown Atlanta is a place of such incredible opportunity. It is the part of the city that over the next period of growth, we should see more transformation and growth than any other part of the city. And for that to be successful, we have to utterly change the streets mm-hmm. and and make it a city. And and that includes the conversion of these one-way highways that go through downtown to two-way normal city streets. I'm I'm abs- I'm it's not a crusade, it's really a public service announcement more than anything, Rose. It is it Well, is, but not everybody's well, on board with that. Well, I understand, you know. but we can't we can't abdicate our responsibility around this public service announcement. We we, we have to, this is our future, is these kinds of transportation investments, which includes the conversion of streets in downtown Atlanta from one-way streets to two-way, absolutely, to answer your question. Well, because business I've owners, I've heard from business owners who, look, I'm not asking you to advocate for them. I'm just telling you what I hear. I mean, because we need to allow as much as we can, everyone to have their voice or their opinion heard. And... Business owners in downtown have said that that conversion through their lens would be detrimental to their 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 business. So that's why I asked you that. Well, yeah, and, and the thing is, Rose, we had a big meeting on this last night, a public meeting, not related directly to the two-way conversions, but related to Peachtree Street. And and we, we have over the past, you're talking about during the Biden's administration, over the past 12 months to two years, had an a wide public conversation around these issues. Mm -hmm. And I I have to say, Rose, I hear from more businesses and property owners that are in support of it than against. Absolutely, there are some that are against it. 
And that is the case with most anything you do in a street. But we do have people that are against it, but we have many more that are in favor of it. And I have to say that the, that everyone will benefit from that. And, and it's okay for people to be opposed, of course, and for us to have to spend lots of time with everybody to ensure that the way we do it mm-hmm. is as thoughtful as it can be. But we are doing this for people, whether they support it or not. And, and it's simply, you know, what Atlanta must do. And I, I don't want to, cause I could talk about this for another 20 minutes. Oh, I understand. I don't want, I don't want to, <laughs> but, but anyway, I, the, I tried to answer the question simply, but, but anyway, the, yes, absolutely. This is important. Well, can I ask you one more question that's not related? Well, it might be related to the, before we get to the creative bike parking. Are you in favor of the stitch? I talked about that yesterday. You like that idea? We are. Yeah. We, we've been very supportive of it. And, and that particular um, investment is a, is a, is a, its location and the scope of it is, is, is ideal, I think. And it's, it's an important thing. It will take a while to get done. Mm-hmm. There are other things we'll do faster than that, but that's an important part of what needs to happen in Atlanta. All right. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Atlanta's uh, commissioner of city planning, Tim Keene. You okay? You a little, I didn't make you mad. Did you? You, you good? You right <laughs> I'm okay. I, I think ask your next question. Though. Well, I'll a see. listener says, why does, Keen seem mad at that you're asking him questions. He's making me mad. <laughs> oh my goodness! Don't come over here. Well, like. here to to answer that question. <laughs> the, the topic today was the love our places. It is, now look, and, and that is even, how many minutes are we into this interview? Don't worry about that. Here's the thing: you are the commissioner of city planning. There's a lot to talk about. We have a new mayor yes, coming sir. in. You know how this goes. We may not always jump into we we have to set the stage as if folks don't know what you do or who you are. Every segment I approach that way. Absolutely. Somebody in Waterloo, Iowa might be listening and they're like, well, what does this Tim King guy do? So I got to set that for him. Well, I appreciate that. Right? Now you ready to talk about bikes? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> OK, let's talk about bike parking. Now, you all are are asking folks to create or come up with some you're taking applications for this creative ideas on bike parking first let's back up what is the love our places bike parking program all about well it's it's part of a love our places is a is a larger program that incorporates a number of things all having to do with how Atlantans uh, use their streets and change their streets mm-hmm. for the betterment of of their neighborhood, of their community, and and it's important because, as, as I've said in the context of other parts of this discussion, how we how we how we use our streets is fundamentally important to our future, and and it's it's got to be uh, our real. Our, our challenge as a city is to, is to redesign our streets for people. And, you know, we went through a period of designing everything for driving hundred percent, a hundred percent. Let's, let's, let's hundred percent. Let's go in a hundred percent on driving. The reality is of course that in a growing city and region, 
we can't do that anymore. So the only way to, to solve the mobility challenge that we have is to change our streets now to be for people, for people walking, mm-hmm. riding their bikes, for people getting to and from transit in particular. And so Love Our Places is really a, a series of things, which includes, you know, we've worked with neighborhoods on on changes to their streets, whether it's bike lanes or changing intersections for pedestrians or designing a new bus stop. All these kinds of things are part of Love Our Places. Um, we recently worked to create now 17 of these uh, outdoor spaces for restaurants across the city that are in the street on the inside of the curb. Mm-hmm. You might've heard of those. This is part of the Love Our Places project. We have 17 of them now. City Council recently approved the, uh, that we can keep those for another full calendar Is that year. different from the parklets? That's the same thing. Same I don't thing? like to use the term parklet uh, as much, um, just, but, but that's what it is. And it's easier what? to understand, so I should use it. It is yeah, because parklet. that's how you all, your press release. I know, I know. We we call it that. You You're right. just, what's wrong with you? The Santa, <laughs> Santa tell you he's not bringing anything? Because you, I don't like that word. It came out of your department. <laughs> what's wrong oh, I, love, I love talking to you, Rose. I know you I do. really do. You put me in my place and I appreciate it. The, the uh, parklets, there's 17 of them all, all around the city. So that's part of one of our places. Now, this new one is the, the bike parking. So, so we're seeking uh, applicants, and the application is very simple um, for you to apply. But to to take a parking space or a part of the street in different parts of the city, we think we'll get at least twelve of these locations, and maybe more than that. Um, but where you take a a parking space or some other part of the street and and make a new bike parking corral, so to speak, mm-hmm. but also incorporate artwork into sure. the into the spot and we'll also have a bike repair station there as well but so it's part of part of that bigger program but we've got a deadline for applications on this which is december 31st mm-hmm. so you still got time to apply for one of these bike parking let me ask locations. you commissioner someone listening what what makes for an idea i guess space when you talk about bike parking would it be mm-hmm. off street would it be on on the sidewalk or can you give, well, give me one would, example here this, this will not be on the sidewalk. This, this will be in the street. So it would be the kinds of places that we're expecting would be, say you're in a, a little neighborhood center. We have so many of them around the city. I'll just take Cascade Heights as, as one example. They have on-street parking there. You would take one of those parking spaces, perhaps let's say one near Buzz Coffee, for instance. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's the kind of location that, that could be uh, proposed. I heard someone yesterday suggest to me a location in Pittsburgh, uh, which is a, a, a location that is uh, in proximity to the Beltline that they thought would be a great spot. Um, mm-hmm. So those kinds of places, you know, where there's a lot of bike parking, but but where there's, but you're going to be in the public space, you're going to be in the street. And then how many of these are y'all looking to then construct or improve what have you and how much will it cost first of all we we expect that the number will be at least 12 as i said it could be Mm -hmm. as many as 20 it kind of depends on the locations because each location will be a little bit different and custom so we'll have to price them as we go the amount of funding that we have allocated to the whole program is three hundred thousand dollars. we the funding comes from we have a trust fund 
that we get some funding from every year that comes from uh, advertisements and bus shelters. That's just an agreement that was made between Marta and the city years ago. So we get a little bit of funding every year from that trust fund. And we have to use it towards something that's mobility related. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the funding comes from. For those who rely on that mode of transportation, and we've talked about bike lanes, and, and you and I have had this conversation as well. You know, in some neighborhoods where they're advocates, they want more bike lanes. But then in some neighborhoods, they're like, well, before we do bike lanes, can we get some sidewalks? I do want to get mm -hmm. your, your thoughts though, on terms of inf overall infrastructure as it relates to that and, and what you mm -hmm. hope then will happen or continue uh, under Mayor-elect Dickens when he is uh, mayor, because that is still, infrastructure is such a big deal, you know that. And it varies in terms of needs and wants, neighborhood right. to neighborhood. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we've been through this process recently related to the, the bonds that city council is working through right now, including a very public process around what should we be spending infrastructure money on. And there, as you said, Rose, there's 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 a incredible need for sidewalk construction and sidewalk repair in the city, both of those. And in those bond proposals that are moving forward, there is a big investment in new sidewalk. And there's been a lot of analysis of what sidewalks are the highest priority places where you have things like schools and, and, and transit stations and you're missing sidewalks. Where do people need sidewalks most? Mm -hmm. But there's 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 also a great need in the city for bike infrastructure. I don't think it's one or the other. But 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 we as a well, city. When you say you don't think it's one or the other, you don't you don't think that maybe sidewalks might take a bit of a priority over well, bike parking they are. places. Well, you know, we can do lots of things in Atlanta. Certainly, in terms of the bonds that are being proposed uh, for the voters for next year sidewalk takes a priority you're absolutely right and, and it should we, we got a lot of gaps in sidewalks and broken sidewalks so there's a huge investment coming in that and the the investment in sidewalks is way way beyond anything that we're talking about here with love our places the three hundred thousand dollars that we get through this trust that is to be spent on mobility related items you know that's a that's a drop in the bucket obviously when it comes to the the, the investment we need to make and that we're proposing to make in sidewalks. Well, the reason why I asked that and the reason why I'm pressed that because look, you know, I've been over near, I think it was Thorough High School and, and I'm seeing kids walking on, there's no sidewalks. I'm seeing folks trying yeah. to get to Marta, to the bus stops, you know? Right. And Which is, as I said, the, the analysis that went behind the proposals in terms of sidewalk construction and repair for the coming year got to that very issue, Rose. Where mm -hmm. do people need sidewalks most, whether it's walking to school or getting to the transit, those kinds of things. That's the highest priority. Because there's a, as you know, there's an enormous need for this in the city. You know, the and and we need to, you know, chip away at it, but we gotta start with where you need it most. Okay. And so you so you're saying that that's in in the works. Yes, mm -hmm, absolutely. And as I said, as the city council is working through the the bond proposal for the voters next year, and there's a, a big investment in sidewalks that are proposed. Okay, well, stay tuned. Uh, as for the bike parking program, the deadline is December 31st. You all going to choose? You said 12, and then when might? Well, at least 12. At, at least, least 12. 12. Now it could be. You know, it could be many more than that, but at least 12. 
Let me ask you, what makes for a great idea parking, bike parking space? Oh, it's just, you know, I think the first thing, of course, is that, that there's a need for it, you know, that you've got, for me, the reason I mentioned the Cascade Heights example is just because this is their neighborhood center, you know, so places, you need places for people to park that, you know, you ride your bike around the city, it's, it's quite frustrating <laughs> to ride somewhere and then find nowhere to park your bike. Sure, you know? and, but you also want your so, bike to be safe, too. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So here you go. We, we we get a nice, safe bike parking. So a location like that where you've got high demand when it comes to people riding bikes, just as you do when you provide other parking, you know, like car parking, you put it in places where you've got demand for it. And I think that's the first thing is we've got to have, you know, let's address those places where we've got the need uh, for bike parking. All right. City of Atlanta, Commissioner of City Planning, Tim Keene, thank you so much for taking the time. Happy holidays. Thank, thank you, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> happy holidays, Rose. I just like having fun. With you. We, we talk. And, I know. And I but the listeners like, <laughs> they're like, what's up with him today? i just tell you. It's, it's all over Twitter. It's all over Twitter. They're like, what's up? Come on. Have a happy new well, year. You too. And, and we'll have you back. It's All good right. talking to you, Rose. As always, take care now. Okay. Bye bye. That is it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program because some of you have already. Let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. As well as in our podcast because it's free. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.